good morning. Well, one of my favorite things when I get to speak to young moms, that I like to encourage young moms with children still at home, is to teach their children to work. I like to talk about having a strong work ethic and the value of that. And you can see from this picture on the screen, my daughters would probably be appalled that I used a picture of them from their younger days to illustrate and make my point. But I believe that a strong work ethic is important. And if you grew up in the McFarland family, we started incorporating chores pretty young. When you were a two-year-old, even as young as two or three, you learned to start picking up your toys afterwards. And as soon as you were in a big boy bed or a big girl bed, we started working on making that bed. And as you got older, you might have it be your job to sweep the floor after a meal or to dust or do laundry or eventually learn to cook a meal or to help mom and then eventually cook that meal on your own. Later mowing the grass, taking out the trash. And of course my children always just detested the dreaded family yard day in the spring when all hands were on deck to clean out the yard and the flower beds and mulch or, and then that day that we would clean out the garage. In short, I taught my children to work. And I think it's a tremendous gift that we mamas can give our children when we train them to have a strong work ethic. They are not all given the same IQ or the same athletic ability or the same musical or creative or artistic ability, but we can make sure that they all know how to work. And if you will work hard, I think you can succeed in life. My husband's a college professor, and he has students that are very gifted in engineering, the subject that he happens to teach. And then he has students that are sort of average ability, but they work hard. And he would always prefer one that's more average that works hard over the gifted student that is lazy. The thing about work is that work existed before the fall. Did you ever think about that? God put man and woman in the Garden of Eden and they were given jobs to do. And that work brought them joy and satisfaction. It wasn't until after the fall of man, you know, we messed that up, made it to like chapter three, right? <laughs> Page three in the book before we messed up the good thing we had gone. It was after the fall that work became drudgery and work had all those brambles and tears and, and thorns and thistles and, and it made it difficult. Work is a good thing. And when we train our children to have a good work ethic, that's, that's a good thing if we empower them to serve and to work and be part of the family. Well, this week in our study, we came to the, the study of the parable of the talents where a master went away on a journey and he entrusted some property to the servants. And, and they had jobs that they were to do in his absence. And just as I would distinguish between the assignments that I gave to my children, I didn't expect a 16-year-old to do the same thing as a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old. I handed out jobs to my children based upon their age and their ability. So this master doled out talents that he gave in proportion to the abilities of the servants that he was giving them to. I would like to invite you to stand with me, as is our custom, in honor of God's holy word. We're going to read from our text the parable of the talents found in Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, where it says this. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey, and the man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more, but the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, 
and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents, and see, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. And see, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ladies, thank you for standing in honor of God's word. You may be seated and just pray with me as we begin. Father God Almighty, let us just want, let us want more of you. As we study your word and, and we glean more knowledge and we understand you more, let the chief aim and our chief desire be to have more of you and to know you better so that we are better equipped to live and serve you and love you better in this world. Thank you for the talents given to each woman in this room. And as we study this parable that seems on the surface so logical and understandable, but as we dig through and we see layers of deeper things and deeper understanding, would you challenge us and teach us, and would your Holy Spirit lead out in how we apply this to our lives? Thank you for the illumination that your Spirit provides, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, this week we're studying the third parable in our study of the ten that we're looking at. All three of the three that we've studied so far all deal with the end times. They deal with the theme of a master going away and then those that are left behind to occupy themselves, what they are to be doing in the absence of the master. All three address the idea of watching and being ready and how we occupy ourselves in the master's absence. In week one, we talked about being challenged to be expecting his return and to be dwelling in the word as we wait. And that was the parable of the faithful servant. And then last time on, in week two, we looked at the parable of the ten virgins. That was also a parable about, about watching. And we learned that it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that marks us as his. And it was a joy to look at all those things the Holy Spirit does and provides for us. And now as we come to week three, the parable of the talents, it's also dealing again with the master who goes away on a journey and it includes the call to be working while we are waiting. And just as with those first two parables, we can identify some key elements in the parable and some key characters and some things that happened. There's the master, of course. The master represents, as, as it has in the other two, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it's interesting to think Jesus is speaking to a first century audience, and he's talking about the time that he'll go away, and of course he's with them there. So we live in that time of his going away. So it's interesting how this parable and all the parables that talk about what to do in his absence almost speak more to us than it did the contemporaries that were hearing it. Because many of them might not live to see that middle time after his ascension. The journey is is that time after his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven when Jesus leaves earth and goes back to heaven, but we know he's coming back. And then the master's return in the parable, that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. The three servants all receive talents, but all three receive a different number of talents. These three servants are distinguished in the story by their faithfulness. Faithfulness is the character trait that is highlighted and focused upon in this parable. And I think that's our big takeaway, the theme of faithfulness. Faithfulness was the challenge to the listeners in the first century that were hearing Jesus face-to-face teaching this parable. And it's the same challenge to us all these years later in the 21st century to live faithful. So before we move on, though, I want to do something a little different. I want to sort of take a little time out, and I want to address a dilemma that bubbled up very quickly as I began to study this parable verse by verse. It's kind of what I was alluding to when I prayed about how there's the surface of what we think. Of course we understand that. And then as you start digging deeper, there's sort of a little dilemma that pops up. And a couple of you picked up on that and even texted me and questioned me this week. So as I wrestled with it, as some of you have, the dilemma raises this question for us. And the question is, was that third servant a believer? Was he a follower of Christ or not? So if your answer is no, he wasn't a believer, then I want to tell you that you are in agreement with many wise scholars, including the author of our commentary, Dr. Ray Steadman, and even Dr. John MacArthur. Now, the primary reason, most likely, for maintaining that the third servant was not a believer is most likely the response that Jesus uh, gave to him in Matthew 25, 30, that the master gave to the servant in verse 30, when he said, he issues that judgment. And he said, throw him, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so when we hear darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth, well, that surely does sound like hell to me, and it, and it probably sounds like hell in your ears as well. And we'll, we'll talk more about that later. But if you answered yes to the was the third servant a believer question, well, guess what? You too are in agreement with several wise, godly scholars. One of my favorites, Dr. Warren Wearsby, as well as Dr. Herbert Lockyer. There are about eight commentaries that I read as I prepare, and I begin to see the same question that I had, I begin to see what these guys don't have it all figured out. And so the, the, the brilliant scholars that speak Greek and Hebrew and write the books and have seminary degrees, they don't always agree on everything. So essentially, what we're asking when we ask this question is, is this parable addressing salvation? Or is it addressing the rewards that Christians will receive when Christ returns based upon how we use what we've been given to serve the Lord? So... Whichever position you take, you have a scholar to back you up. So you can feel that you're in good company. And no matter what position you take, I think we can just choose to accept what we learn from this passage about God and and challenge ourselves and ask ourselves and ask the Lord to reveal to us how we can be faithful as we wait the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does he want us to use what we've been given? Well, 
after studying and reading and praying, my position is that this parable is not about salvation. And I want to explain to you why. Because I think you need to know my position as I unpack the teaching that the Lord, I feel, has, has given to me for today. That the man in the parable was a believer, but I'm going to stop short of saying that if you disagree with me that you're wrong, of course. This is one of many examples in Scripture where we see through a glass dimly. There are some things, how we are saved. There's lots of doctrine that is crystal clear. In an area like this where it's not exactly crystal clear, I don't think we need to break fellowship about it. Many churches and church splits and new denominations have happened through the years because people felt like they had to agree on every single fine point. So we're not going to get mad at each other here, and we're not going to take a vote or a poll or anything like that. We're not going to accuse anyone of being wrong. And just so you know, as the teaching leader for this Bible study, you will never hear me say, well, some people think this and some people think that, but they're wrong. Or I've done the thinking and the thinking has been done. You know, if even scholars from the past have disagreed about this, then I just don't think we're going to be able to come to settle that. The Lord will make it clear later. So let me explain my position for taking the position that I am. Okay, first of all, salvation is not based on works but on grace. And so I feel like that is an absolute truth. And if we extrapolate and assume that the third servant wasn't a believer because he did something with his talent or didn't do something with his talent, I feel like it just takes us down that road to suggest that our salvation is based upon something that we do. So... That's one reason. Um, two, I think the talents are spiritual gifts. So the spiritual gifts wouldn't be given to a non-believer. And then third, receiving no praise or reward from Jesus is going to feel like outer darkness, I believe. Uh, that's gonna, that, that would feel, it's, it's not hell, but it would feel like darkness if we don't get the reward for what God has given to us um, from him. And then also, Jesus sometimes spoke with hyperbole to make a point. Do you remember the time? that he said, to follow me, you have to hate your father and mother or your family. I don't think he literally meant hate them. I think he, he was telling us that we have to follow him and be so wholeheartedly in love and serving him that it's so far from how we feel about others that it feels like hate. So parables are intended to illustrate truth. They're stories meant to help explain and illuminate deeper spiritual truth. But over and over, the one thing that the scholars I've read do agree on is that you don't build theology based on an illustration. And we shouldn't expect to stretch this so far that there's an application for everything in the parable. So now that I've made my position clear and why, let's talk about what is a talent, okay? So a talent in Greek represented money. And again, I got some different answers about this. Some said that it was over $1,000. Some said it was a year's wages. Some said one talent was over 20 years' wages. But we can just say it was a lot. And in this case, we can also extrapolate and say that it's, it's our gifts as well. Uh, our spiritual gifts, it can be even uh, some natural abilities because those are also given to us by God. And they can even be opportunities that God provides for us. The point is that the talents in this story, they belong to the master. They belong to the master. They were entrusted to the servant. They weren't something that the servant could conjure up or create or manufacture on their own. They had been given to him and entrusted to him. They were given out in proportion to ability. All three servants in this story received a talent, but they all got different amounts. There were five TPs, five talent people. There were two talent people, two TPs. And then there was the one TP, the one talent person. But in every case, 
those talents were to be used for the master, not for themselves. So if I have $1,000 of my money that I want to invest, and I go down to Edward Jones, and I see my friend Jeremy, and I say, Jeremy, I want you to invest this money for me. Well, that's my money. That's not his money, right? I'm entrusting it to him. It's something valuable that belongs to me, and I'm, I'm giving it to him. But he's not the owner of my money. He's a steward of it. It doesn't belong to him when I give it to him. I'm going to come back in a year or two or five years, and I'm going to want, I'm actually going to expect him to have put my money to work. And if I come back a year from now, and he's taken my 1000 and made it 2000 well, I'm going to be pretty happy about it. If I come back a year from now and I've given him a thousand and he gives me back my same thousand, I probably wouldn't be very happy. That was the best analogy that I could come up with to make us understand what we're supposed to be doing. Well, because I believe this parable deals with rewards to the believer for faithful service, and the talents then represent spiritual gifts and opportunities to use those gifts and the things that the Lord has built into us, they can only come from God. They, we, we can't create those. We can't make ourselves something that we're not. We can't say, well, I want to sing for Jesus, so I'm going to get this great musical talent. That doesn't happen. Um, and so as we ex expand and extrapolate and look at this, all that we have really comes from him, right? All of our resources, our time, even our money, they're all, everything we have, even the privilege of being born in this country and the freedoms we have, that's a gift from him. <laughs> And so how are we stewarding all that he has given to us? Because life in this world is sometimes a battle, and because Paul taught us about putting on the armor of God, whom he gave us the instruction in Ephesians 6 on living that victorious life, a military analogy came to mind when I tried to ponder a good way to explain the unequal distribution of gifts. And so I thought about the military hierarchy. At the top, there's just a handful of generals in the military. And there's a whole bunch more guys in the middle, the lieutenants and the majors and the sergeants. And then at the bottom, there's all those guys that really do the work, guys and gals. The privates at the bottom, there's a whole lot more privates. And so if we try to sort of apply that to the kingdom of God, we might say the generals, well, those are the five TPs. And those are the people that if we were going to guess who would be in that category, we might say, well, the five talent people, those are the Billy Grahams or the Charles Spurgeons or the John Wesleys. We can think of people contemporary to us and people from the past. The Apostle Paul would be a 5TP guy, right? And then we go to the middle, all the, the folks in the middle, the two talent people. And, and if we looked around in, in our community or in our world, we might say, well, those are the people committed to full-time service. Those are pastors and missionaries and evangelists. And then all the way on the bottom rung, those lowly, one-talent people, well, those, those are just normal folks. Maybe that's all of us. Those are Christians that are masquerading as plumbers and nurses and teachers. These are the people that, that are moms and dads and friends. And so when we look at it like that, and we think that at the top of that is our commander-in-chief, Jesus. And so I, I tried to think about, let's bring this all the way home. Let's not just talk about the military or the world or history. Let's think about Solemn Springs, Arkansas. The population of Solemn Springs in 2017 was about 17,000. So I just rounded up and assumed that when they do the new census, let's just say we're at an even 20,000. And our challenge is to reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let's say we do that by exercising one talent, one day. That it takes one talent and one day 
to connect with one person. Now, that'd be a lot to make the time to connect with one person every day. But let's say that we say, oh, we have to leave that to the five TP people. That's just too big of a job. I wouldn't know what to say. I can't do that. So if we rest on the, the five talent people, and let's say there's 10 of those, okay? Let's say there are 10 five TPs in Salem Springs, Arkansas. Those are probably going to be the professionals in our community. That might be your pastor, and you know that he's, he's great. He can share the gospel. He's got the gift of evangelism. And let's say we've got 10 of those five TPs, and we're just all going to step back and let those 10 guys, or 10, there's probably some women in there too, but we're going to let those 10 individuals be responsible for reaching 20,000 people. If each of them every day reaches one person, it'll take five and a half years to touch 20,000 people. That's a long time to penetrate a community. Well, let's assume that we're going to grab a hold of 100 two-talent people because I'm assuming that with the pyramid there's more two-talent people than maybe five talent people, okay? Hang with me. I, I guess maybe being a CPA means I like to quantify things and use numbers. And if, if your eyes glaze over, just hold on, we'll get there. So let's say that there's 100 two talent people. And so those 100 people are engaged, and, and those might be Sunday school teachers, and, and they might be deacons in your church. They might be, be people that have been Christians forever, and they're just, they just seem to naturally be relational and be able to talk to people. And so we say, well, let's just harness them. Let's, let's put that on them. And so if we, if we get those 100 people engaged, and they are on task, and they're going to use their talents to share the gospel, those 100 people engaged to reach 20,000 people, it's going to take 6.7 months. Now, isn't that extraordinary that we've used from years to months to reach the people in our community? But what if instead we said in Salem Springs, we've got 1,000 one-talent people, just 1,000 normal people like you and me? What if 1,000 people just very naturally in their lives and then the relationships, and in their neighborhoods, and at Walmart, and at the soccer field, just began to really live on mission and embrace using the talent that they had been given to share the gospel and to love on people. What if a thousand people believed that there is a literal hell as much as they believe and hope they're going to heaven and really took their faith seriously? If those thousand people were engaged and decided, I am going to share the gospel, a thousand people to reach 20,000 people, well, you do the math, that's pretty obvious. It takes 20 days, 20 days to reach our community. If we are engaged as normal people, loving the Lord, using our talents, getting the message out, we, we move from years to months to days to reach the people of our community with the gospel. Clearly, the work to advance the kingdom of King Jesus should not just be left to those five talent people. It's not just for those that we would deem the professionals we all get to be part of what God is doing in this world. This is not a guilt trip. This is a holy privilege. This is a sacred privilege. When we hold out, we miss out, and we miss the blessing. You know what? We're not guaranteed next week or next year or today. It's interesting that those servants that were faithful, they kicked in immediately. Last week, I had the sacred, holy privilege and a daunting responsibility. I was asked to speak at the funeral of a 35-year-old young man. A friend of mine's son passed away. It wasn't a funeral. It was a memorial service. The funeral had been over in Oklahoma. They hosted a little memorial service here. That was a hard thing. That was a big stretch for me. But the thing about it is, 
No one expects to be attending the funeral for a 35-year-old, healthy, vibrant, alive young man. But we're not guaranteed when we walk out of here that we have next week or tomorrow or even the next five minutes. The message of this parable is faithfulness. How are we using what we've got to be faithful to the job that God has given to us? Well, two of the three servants got their blessing. Jesus said the same thing to both of them. And I'm sure you picked that up in your verse-by-verse study. The exact same words in verses 21 and 23. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. I don't know about you, but I want to hear that. I want to get to heaven and hear Jesus say, well done, Laura. That, that, that's music to my ears. That's my hope for, for glory, to hear my Lord say that. The servant with five talents, he produced five more. The servant with two talents, he produced two more. They both doubled what they had been given. They didn't receive the same amount of talents, but they both doubled what they had been given by the master. They were both faithful. The quantity that resulted was different. We know that five is certainly more than two, but both gave 100% and both had a return on investment of 100%. And they both heard the same words of affirmation from their master. He said to both of them, well done. They were both called good and faithful. And notice this, Jesus didn't say, well done genius servant or well done athletic servant, well done musically talented servant, well done articulate servant. He said, well done faithful servant. We don't have to have all this natural stuff. We don't need to be jealous of somebody else's gift. We need to be faithful to use what we have. It's not the amount we get. It's what you do with what you've got that matters. You have been faithful with a few things, Jesus said. Faithfulness is the character trait that matters most to the master. He knows each of us. He knows what each is capable of. He chose not to frustrate some by giving them more than they could handle, but he also gave those with a greater capacity a greater amount to work with. And just as you and I as mamas expect more from a 16-year-old than a 4-year-old, we know them. We know what they are capable of, and we dole out chores accordingly. We expect them just as, we ex- as our master expects us to do our best, not in comparison to what the others do, but what they are capable of. And then our obligation, and even, yes, our privilege, is the same regardless of the amount that we receive to be faithful. And the reward for faithfulness is the same to all. You and I might look at someone like Ann Graham Lotz, trying to think of a famous Christian woman that that is awesome and doing great things for the kingdom. And if we got to meet Anne, we would say, oh, Anne, it's amazing how you're serving the Lord. I could never do what you do. And I think if we said that to her, that Anne would probably say, well, of course not, because God didn't call you to do it. You see, God always equips us for what he calls. That was the message with the teaching on the Holy Spirit last week. God gives us what we need and empowers us to do the job that he calls us to do. So I want to ask you, what would you step out and do if you knew you couldn't fail because you and God were doing it together, because he was calling you to do it, and he was empowering you to do it, and he was going to walk with you and be with you as you complete that task? There are three great rewards for faithfulness in this passage. To be commended by him, well done, and then to get more opportunities. You know, you do a good job, you get another job, right? But in God's economy, that's great. Serving Jesus actually becomes addictive. It's not drudgery. It is joy. And the more you serve him and the more you live for him, 
the more you want to be a part of what he is doing. You get out of bed and run to say, Lord, who are we going to love on today? What is my assignment for this day? It's not drudgery. It is delight. And then there's the joy. Jesus says, come and share in my happiness, the master says to the servants. The world promises but never delivers on real happiness. Real joy, eternal joy, bears up over time. As women of God, we should long to hear those words in Matthew 25 from our Lord. The first two servants did. Well done. You've been faithful. I'll put you in charge of more. Come and share the joy. But that third servant did not receive the blessings. Here's his report to the master. I knew you were a hard man. Harvesting where you didn't sow and gathering where you've, scat- where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I hid your talent in the ground, he says. Well, these words from this unfaithful servant reveal so much about him. First of all, he plays the blame game. He says, well, you're the hard man, and I knew this about you. So, Master, it's your fault that I was lazy. Really, that's what he's saying, isn't it? What we think about God does indeed impact how we respond to God and how we obey God and how we live for or refuse to live for God. Those words suggest really that the third servant didn't really know the Lord very well. Um, And that would be many of us, really, when our journey with Jesus begins. If you accepted Christ as a seven-year-old, you didn't know everything about him then. And you may have had some, some distorted views of what God is like. But as we walk with him, can't we all say that we know him better now than we did 20 years ago or 15 years ago or 10 years ago or hopefully even last month or last week? It's a continual journey of, of loving him and getting to know him more and more. And so he missed out by burying that talent. The unfaithful servant even forfeited the opportunity to know his master by serving him. And then he admits, well, I was afraid. And you know, fear does indeed paralyze us. Fear can result in our missing our mission and missing our call and missing our ministry. So I want to ask you, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? And is fear really masquerading pride? Because if it's all about fear of what people are going to think about me, isn't the bottom of that really pride? I'm convinced that it all comes down to fear and pride when we live less when God has more to us. I want to give you some examples, some specifics, because I like to be real practical. Maybe these are some real, live, practical application of examples to be faithful in our world, in the 21st century, in our little corner of the United States, in Salem Springs, Arkansas, or wherever you live. Okay, number one, you're at a ball game. That probably would describe many of us here in the course of a, of a week. You're a mom, you're a grandma, you're a fan, you go to a ball game. And there's a friend of a friend sitting in front of you, and that friend of a friend is just kind of venting, and she's moaning about the difficulties of life. And you can tell she's really distraught. And, and it's just parenting and marriage and work, and it's just all piled up. And she asks the question, well, what's the purpose of it all anyway? She says, I've just decided I'm taking Saturday off, and Saturday is going to be a day just for me, and I'm going to go get a massage, and I'm going to get my nails done, and I'm going to go to the mall, and I'm going to buy myself some happiness, and he, I'm just going to take my credit card, and I'm just going to tell my husband, you're in charge of the kids in the house today, and then the Holy Spirit hands you a talent, and in this case, the talent is an opportunity, and the Holy Spirit says, tap her on the shoulder and ask her if you can buy her a cup of coffee tomorrow. And, uh, and when you take her to coffee, I want you to answer her question, what is the purpose of life? 
Because she asked the question. And 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now that's a hard job, trying to talk to someone that you barely know about Jesus. Number two, your Christian sister invites you and your husband over for dinner, and during the evening you're uncomfortable because multiple times, multiple times, she condescendingly and critically speaks to her husband. And, and it begins to be embarrassing, and it's just kind of awkward, and, and certainly dishonors him and, and disobedient to the scripture. And so the Holy Spirit, again, hands you a talent. And he says, text her on the way home and ask you if you can take her out to lunch tomorrow. And Galatians 6.1 says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Now, there's a hard job. Now, it's not talking to someone you don't really know very well, but someone that you do know very well about living for Jesus. Number three, the youth pastor calls, and he wants you to host the youth small group on Saturday, and you had great plans for Saturday. You were going to tackle that messy closet, and you were going to do a clean sweep and take it all out and get it organized. You've even bought the baskets and the new great hangers and everything, and it's finally going to get done. And then your plan is Saturday night when it was all done. You were going to indulge in a Netflix binge, and you've got the Rocky Road in the freezer, and your Saturday <laughs> is planned. And so, ugh. You grudgingly say yes, and then you start cleaning up because you got to clean up even to have the youth come over, and then, of course, you have to clean up after they leave. But you're cleaning very loudly, and your frustration is clear. And as you're cleaning and moaning and grumbling, the Holy Spirit whispers these words in your heart. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> I can do it, but I can't do it grumbling. And so then as you listen and you begin to pray for the youth, and you begin to pray for what will happen, the gospel, holy work that will happen in your living room. And you begin to pray for that youth pastor and for the youth that will come, and you begin to pray for that evening. Okay, one more. You run into a former co-worker at Walmart, and when you ask, how are you, she tears up. And she says, I've just gotten back test results, and I have breast cancer, and it's stage three, and I'm going to start chemo and radiation next week, and I'm so scared. And you open your mouth to say, oh, I'll pray for you. But the Holy Spirit hands you a talent and says, pray now. Pray now. James 5.16 says, the prayer of a righteous man, or we might say a righteous woman, is powerful and effective. Now, that, that, that's a hard job, to pray in public and with someone that's really just an acquaintance and not really a close friend. Fear, ladies, keeps our mouths closed. And it keeps our hearts closed. And it keeps our homes closed. And even our checkbooks closed. Fear keeps us paralyzed and quiet and ineffective. But what are we really afraid of? Is it being thought less of? Is it being labeled a Jesus freak? Are we worried about failing? And are really all those worries just a focus on self? And you know what that means? It's pride. Maybe we give ourselves a pass when we say, well, I'm just too timid. I'm just an introvert. I just don't have a way with words. But what we're really saying is I'm too prideful. It's a focus on self. Can you have enough faith to trust that Jesus will put his words on your tongue and his thoughts in your mind and his love in your heart? Fear and pride will hold us back. The opposite of fear is not courage. It's faith. When we accept the talent from our master and step out to use it, that is a statement of faith. And when we use that and walk in faith, that is faithfulness. 
not in my ability, but in his. He has given me what I need in that talent. It doesn't come from me. It's been entrusted from me to me. The Holy Spirit, our holy reminder, he will lead. And he will, will provide the words that we need when we need them. Jesus taught the disciples in Luke 12, Don't worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at the time what you should say. It is our faith in him that lets us use the talent that came from him to be used to make much of him. Because of faith in him, we can choose to be faithful when he opens those doors for us. When we keep our mouth closed and our heart closed and our doors closed, it's the spiritual equivalent of burying our talent in the ground. No increase, no return on God's investment. And note, you know, note the interesting thing about that unfaithful servant, it wasn't like he was evil. He didn't take that money and go use it for himself. He didn't say, woohoo, I'm going to the mall. I'm going to go take a cruise. I'm going to go have a big party. He didn't blow it, he just buried it. He did nothing. He basically took the talent that God had chosen uniquely for him and given to him and sort of just handed it right back to God. He sinned by doing nothing. He essentially robbed God. And have you and I done the same? Have we robbed God and simultaneously missed our blessing? I don't want to miss out on any blessing. I don't want to miss out on any opportunity that the Lord has. And the master's response to that servant is chilling and it's sobering. You wicked, lazy servant. And he says, you know, basically, even if, what, even if what you believed about me was true, you still should have just put it in the bank. He doesn't say that it's true. And then Jesus says, you take that bag of gold from him and you give it to the one with ten. And then he goes on and says, take, throw that worthless servant outside for into the darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. If we were playing the $25,000 pyramid and the category was the unfaithful servant, we would share words like shirking, complacent, Lazy, idle, passive, disobedient, slacker. May that never be used to describe you and me. Dear sisters, may, whether we have been given five or two or just one talent, let's be found faithful. Better to have only one talent be faithful than to have five and bury what we have been given. What we refuse to lose, to use, we lose. Faithfulness is the reward, and unfaithfulness is punished. Dr. Warren Wiersbe says this about the punishment doled out to the unfaithful servant. Some feel that this unprofitable servant was not a true believer, but it seems <clears throat> that he was a true servant, even though he proved to be unprofitable. The outer darkness of Matthew 25:30 need not refer to hell. The man was dealt with by the Lord. He lost his opportunity for service, and he gained no praise or reward. And to me, that is outer darkness. The servant is the believer, in, I, is what I believe at least, but so shallow and so lazy that he missed out. He will be like those referred to in 1 Corinthians 3.15. Fire will test the quality of each, of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. You know, I think there are many people that are saved and all they have is their fire insurance. They're going to be kept out of hell, but the failure to use the talents that God has been given means no reward. What is it that holds us back as a servant? Is it pride masquerading as fear? Is it lack of faith in God that he will provide? Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe we're jealous that we just have this 
piddly little one talent, and we see people with two talents or five talents, and we wish we could be like that? Are we somehow angry that we don't have the opportunities that others have been given? Because I haven't been given this much that I want and that even maybe I covet, am I refusing to use this much that God, in his kindness and in his great wisdom, has given to me? Does our resentment that we can't do the great big thing for God lead us to refuse to do the thing that we can do, that he is calling us to do, that he has equipped us to do. The challenge to us as followers of Jesus, our master, is to be faithful, to use what he has given us to take those talents and put them to work for his kingdom. Many, I would say, if probably not most believers, are, are probably one-talent people. But yet, why are we unfaithful to use what we have been given? As we choose to be faithful, may we use whatever he has given and blessed us to, to bring back blessing to him. Because the woman of God is faithful. Whether she has five or two or one talents, she is faithful. She uses her spiritual gifts faithfully. She seizes every opportunity to be a good steward of what God has given to her. She rejects the fear. She rejects the worry about what other people will think of her. She opens her mouth. She opens her home. She opens her life. And she makes room to make much of him. The faithful work that she does for him is propelled by her love for him. Perhaps it's really not fear or lack of courage or being timid or being jealous. Maybe the biggest thing that holds many of us back is the lack of love for our master. Do you ever think about that? Do we really love Jesus wholeheartedly? When our son Luke got married, our only grandchild at the time, Julia Grace, was only two years old. She's the daughter of our oldest son, Kyle, and his wife, Tori, and she was chosen to be the flower girl. Now, Julia Grace is an extrovert, but she was only two, and so her mommy carried her to the back, and so it was an outdoor wedding, and so there's, just like, in a, in a, as you can imagine, whether it's a church or wherever, there's the chairs on both sides, and there's the path, and there at the back is Tori. I can still picture her in my mind holding Julia Grace, and we had practiced during dress rehearsal, and Julia Grace knew what she was to do even at two years old, and this was her opportunity to be faithful. So you see the analogy. Doing her job as flower girl meant when her mommy brought her to the back and put her down, she was to walk down the aisle. And she had done it beautifully in practice. But I remember that day, the actual day of the wedding, even for this little extrovert who's two years old, there were a lot of people there. And I remember seeing Julia Grace at the back clinging to her mommy, wanting to stay safe and secure in the arms of her mommy because there were a lot of people there if she had to walk. And I wonder, have you been there? You know, if Bible study is dress rehearsal where we talk about what we could do in given situations or we have examples in the course of a day or a week or a month as we meet together and we spur one another on to consider and think about the opportunities that we're handed to speak up and share the truth while we're sitting in the bleachers at a basketball game or during our exercise class at lunch with friends, when you go back to your high school reunion, while you're visiting with neighbors in the backyard or, or just at the grocery store or with your own family at the dinner table or your go to the mall, wherever, wherever we go, there are always going to be those opportunities to speak up and speak the truth. This is dress rehearsal. We go out the door and there's, there's life. There's the opportunity to use those talents for the one who gave them to us. How might your talent mean opening your mouth and loving on others and having the courage, the faith, to share the truth? There are hurting people in our lives that desperately need love. And sometimes, almost always, 
Those people can be needy, and loving them well is inconvenient, and it's messy, and it's easier, isn't it, just to love people that are kind of like me, that, that love me back and appreciate me? How might using your talent mean opening your heart and your schedule and even opening your front door, being inconvenienced? Well, like Julia Grace safe in her mother's arms, staying home or being quiet or keeping the schedule clear and keeping your mouth closed, just feel safe. What is it that enables us to overcome the fear? The fear of failing, the fear of being mocked, the fear of being laughed at, of losing myself, which of course is really pride. How can we overcome that fear and choose to be faithful? Well, the answer is to take our eyes off of the what-ifs and to shift our focus from the fear and keep our eyes firmly fixed on the one who loves us and calls us. Julia Grace walked that aisle as a two-year-old, overcoming the fear of all those people looking at her. And she was able to let go of her mommy and not just walk, but run with joy because she looked up and saw her poppy waiting for her. When Kevin saw her fear, he stepped out into the aisle and he squatted down and he held out his arms and stretched out his arms. And she saw him and she took her eyes off all those scary people and she couldn't wait to get to her poppy. She ran down that aisle to him. I want to ask you, what path is God calling you to run? What opportunities is he giving you? And how can you allow your heart to be so focused on loving him and living for him that you will run in obedience and faithfulness no matter who is watching? The first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Do we really love God? Are we all in? When Julia Grace finished her journey, she was rewarded with the loving embrace of her poppy. And I'm sure he whispered, great job, as he hugged her. And surely that's the 21st century equivalent of God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And when you and I finish our race, when we walk down whatever aisles God has for us, may we hear the same words from our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, my children were taught and trained and expected to do chores because they were part of the family. I don't think it, it really maybe ever brought them the same pleasure it brought me to have a clean counter or an organized garage, but they cooperated because of their love and respect for their parents. The job, of, of course, assigned to each were different because some could do the heavy lifting because they were older, but at the end of that hot day of labor, we told them great job. And sometimes we even went out for pizza or went to Brahms or Barnett's and got ice cream. Our labor for the Lord is prompted primarily by our love and respect for him. Every one of us has different talents and different gifts given to serve him. But as we exercise those gifts faithfully, we all get the same reward. And that same reward includes the words, well done. What a tremendous thing we can look forward to hearing. And when Jesus says, come on in here and share the joy, well, that joy with Jesus is going to trump any hot fudge Sunday that we, that we may get as our reward here. Don't miss the blessing. Don't miss out on your call. Don't allow fear to keep you paralyzed or ineffective for the kingdom work that God has for you. Ladies, let's be found faithful. Pray with me. Oh, Jesus, we love you. Help us to love you more. Empower us to love you. Thank you for the talents that we have been given. And let us be women who are found faithful, who love you and want to live for you, making the most of every opportunity to shine for you in this world where you have placed us. You are good and you are great, and we declare our love for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's be found faithful.